This episode of Long Reads is brought to you by Haymarket Books. One title you might enjoy is Blood and Money, War, Slavery, Finance and Empire by David McNally. McNally tells the story of money as being intimately connected to the slave trade and the waging of war, despite the effort to conceal its violent origins. You can find Blood and Money at haymarketbooks.org. Readers in the US and the UK receive free shipping on orders over $25 or £20. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn, I'm the Features Editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. Western media coverage has often depicted Somalia as the classic example of a failed state. For the past three decades, no government has been able to control its national territory. But news reports about terrorism and piracy have obscured the fact that Somalia is very much a part of the world's system. From the Cold War to the War on Terror, outside intervention by the world's most powerful states has played a major role in worsening the Somali crisis. Our guest today for a conversation about modern Somalia is Elizabeth Schmidt. She's a professor emeritus of history at Loyola University, Maryland, who specialises in the history of Africa. Her most recent book is foreign intervention in Africa after the Cold War. How did the post-colonial Somali state emerge after the period of British and Italian rule? And what were the main legacies of colonial domination for Somalia? Well, when Somalia got its independence in 1960, it was a very strained union of British and Italian colonies, northern and southern Somalia. And the colonial boundaries were retained in independence. And this resulted in millions of ethnic Somalias being located in neighboring countries, notably Ethiopia, Kenya, and Djibouti. And the result of this was that ethnic Somalis waged campaigns against neighboring countries trying to bring their their so-called lost populations into the independent state of Somalia. So it created a lot of conflict. The government of Somalia, East Africa, has severed diplomatic relations with Britain. In 1963, Pathé News reported on a diplomatic row between the newly independent state and its former colonial master. Somalia claims territory in neighbouring Kenya, known as the North Frontier District. But the British colonial secretary had ruled that the district is rightly a part of Kenya. So native employees of the embassy were paid off, while the rest of the staff made tracks for the airport. One of them said the departure made diplomatic history because there was no bad feeling on either side. What were the main ethnic and clan identities that could be found in Somalia at the time of independence, and indeed across the border in neighbouring states? There were large groups in these neighboring countries. And within Somalia, most of the people were what are considered to be ethnic Somalis who share a language, a culture, and religion. But there were divisions. So one main ethnic group that's pretty homogeneous. But there were divisions by clans that tended to be involved in real rivalries Um And there were different clans in the Italian and the British colonies, um, but also within each of those former colonies. And um, again, this this resulted in lots and lots of conflict. And there were ethnic minorities, and they were heavily discriminated against in Somalia. 
How did Siad Barre come to power at the end of the 1960s? And what were the main policies that his government set about enacting? Well, Siad Barre, um, his full name is Mohammed Siad Barre, uh, was a, a general in the Somali army and he overthrew the previous government. Um, in fact, the second president was assassinated and then there was a coup in 1969 by the military and he seized power. And he announced right away that Somalia would pursue a social scientific agenda. And it, it began um, with a massive public works program. And quite frankly, Somalia did make significant strides in development, especially in the rural areas. There were mass literacy campaigns, primary education was extended and became more widely available. Public health was a big achievement in the rural areas, just the basics, but still more than they'd had. And economic development. So these were considered to be quite progressive by leftists. Uh, they, they certainly were in the United States, which worried about Somalia's you know, growing relationship with the Soviet Union. What was the impact of the revolution that followed in the 1970s in neighbouring Ethiopia on both Somalia's foreign policy and its relationship, as you alluded to there, with the Soviet Union? So the, the regime that was overthrown in Ethiopia, the revolution that took place in 1974, um, that was to overthrow what was essentially a feudal society. And the military did not immediately declare itself to be uh, Marxist, but uh, eventually embraced that label. And therefore, the, the United States was extremely concerned, even more concerned than it was about Somalia. So it suspended its economic aid to Ethiopia, which had been a close ally under the feudal leader Haile Selassie. And um, the Soviet Union became the main source of Ethiopia's military and economic assistance after that. But in 1977, the relationship with the Eastern Bloc began to fray in Somalia. So, you know, first it had been the Soviet Union, then the United States kind of came in and took over, hoping to use Somalia as a, a bulwark against the even more radical um, Marxist Ethiopian government. And so Somalia um, teamed up with the United States. Meanwhile, the Soviet Union tried to have it both ways, being involved with Somalia and with Ethiopia. But Somalia invaded Ethiopia in 1977 to try to capture the, the territories that included lots of ethnic Somalis. And this, of course, infuriated the Soviet Union, who, who really wanted to create a sort of union of socialist states in the Horn of Africa, bringing both Somalia and Ethiopia together. But if it had to pick, it was going to pick Ethiopia and Somalia was widely seen as the aggressor nation because when the African colonies got independence, mostly in 1960, but a little before and some after, they agreed to minimize conflict by accepting colonial boundaries, however rational they might be. And Somalia was violating this principle of the organization of African unity, which was um, the forerunner to today's African Union. So Moscow just 
threw in the towel with Somalia and gave its full force to supporting uh, Ethiopia. The following clip comes from a BBC documentary series about the history of the Cold War. It includes interviews with two Soviet government officials and with the Cuban leader Fidel Castro. Gromyko suggested joint mediation with the Americans. But Brzezinski rejected that, saying it would have legitimized the Soviet presence in the Horn of Africa. Brzezinski felt that the American presence was legitimate everywhere, but the Soviet presence wasn't. Anti-Soviet demonstrations in Somalia greeted the government's decision to send the Russian advisers and their families back to Moscow. All Soviet support was now switched to Ethiopia. The Soviet Union began shipping in weapons and 15,000 troops to fight in Ethiopia. The troops were Cuban. It was the only operation we conducted in full agreement with the Soviets. No such cooperation took place even in Latin America. Quite the opposite. The Cuban troops in Ethiopia played a very important role. The Ethiopians couldn't have provided the military organization to destroy the Somali troops in such a short period of time, even with our help. With Cuban troops and Soviet support, the Ethiopians drove the Somalis out of the Ogaden. But Moscow wouldn't let the troops advance into Somalia. Among the Soviet military, we thought about occupying Somalia. But the Soviet government was right not to allow this, because it would have made our relations with countries like the United States of America, Great Britain and others more difficult. If that was the response of Moscow to the invasion of the Ogaden, how did the United States deal with the regime of Saad Bari at that time and afterwards? The United States hoped to use Somalia to thwart Soviet encroachment in the Horn, but it worried that open support of Somalia, given that most African countries considered Somalia, uh, the aggressor state and violating the Organization of African Unity principles, they didn't want to be open about this support. So what they did is they worked through third parties um, and the CIA. The CIA hired an arms dealer that supplied U.S.-made weapons and other agencies coordinated the flow of weapons through other countries, third-party countries. And so it wasn't until after uh, that conflict in, in 1977 was settled, which was sort of a quarter of the way through 1978. Only after that uh, did the United States openly support Somalia, which it did 
with a vengeance um, after this time, as I said, to provide a counterbalance for the Soviet Union in the Horn. This is the first shipment of a four million pound handout from the Americans, which became instantly available the moment the Russians were expelled from here two months ago. While the Ogaden War was still in progress, Siad Barre gave an interview to Jon Snow, a British television journalist. He issued a plea for US and Western backing against Ethiopia and its Soviet ally. What will the consequences be if you don't get major arms supplies from the West? Well, certainly, uh, in a call, we cannot, Somalia cannot fight with the Soviet Union or neither the, the, the Warsaw Pact. Somalia cannot afford that. That means the Soviets will do what they want. And then, consequently, uh, Soviet uh, uh, will command uh, uh, from the window or from the front, I don't mind, but will command all the area of the Red Sea, of Indian Ocean, of Gulf of Adams, and they do what they want. What do you feel now about the way the Russians have treated Somalia? Well, it is the, the worst way that Big Bauer could act, really. It is arrogance. It is proudness. It is measuring of one's decision in accordance to his weakness, unfortunately. Therefore, lack of any wisdom, lack of any seriety. Again, uh, I'd say this because uh, Somalia was a friend with Soviet Union, 18 years. And after 18 years, only because Somalia was not in agreement to certain desire of the Soviet Union, Somalia had to be banished. Is that a seriety of a state? No. Somalia was friend, but Somalia was not dependent. So Soviet pretended to command. And uh, although we see today the uh, the surrounding of the Western to the Soviets' this wish and, and, and might, we still warn to the, to the, to the Africans and non-alignment uh, non countries and developing countries not to believe Soviet Union. Soviet Union is a, is a big power with a new mentality of colonization and dominization. So it is better to have own freedom and independence rather than to accept a new type of subjugations. What were the main internal challenges to Siad Barre's rule during the 1980s? Well, by the mid-1980s, Somalia was in dire straits. The cost of the Ethiopian war, combined with corruption and mismanagement, had really run the economy into the ground. It was, it was economically in a downward spiral. And it just clearly dissipated the development achievements of the previous decade. And that, combined with really onerous taxes, stimulated unrest in the rural areas. And uh, this is where Siad Barre's general tactics came in when he was in crisis. Uh, he brutally repressed uh, the protests. Um, so again, generating real hatred for his regime. He imprisoned or killed his critics, or he drafted them into the Somali army and then collectively punished their clan members. And he, another tactic that he was known for was that he encouraged clan rivalry, so sort of divide and rule 
um, that increasingly dominated, his own clan increasingly dominated his regime. So in 1989, the clans that had suffered from harassment or discrimination united in their opposition to Siad Barre's rule, and they also uh, opposed another force that uh, united against um, Siad Barre, and that was the Islamists, who had also been very brutally repressed by the Siad Barre dictatorship. So these two different groups, the clans that had suffered discrimination and the Islamists didn't join together, but the two groups united against the the Bari regime. We're now going to hear a clip from an Al Jazeera documentary about the atrocities committed during the last years of the Siad Bari regime. In the late 1980s, General Siad Bari launched a genocidal war against people in the north of his country. Barri ordered a devastating bombardment of Hargisa by ground and air in scenes reminiscent of World War II. Eyewitnesses say thousands of civilians were rounded up and summarily executed. Tens of thousands more fled into exile. The campaign was pitiless and brazenly documented by the general's own men who competed to prove devotion to their leader and be rewarded for it but recording their own crimes would come back to haunt them. Somali academic Dr. Hussein Bulhan made an astonishing discovery in the dictator's archives. I found a tape that was really a fifth-generation copy of a military documentary, raw data that uh, the Siad Barra regime military had, and the officers and soldiers in Hargeisa were taping how they were destroying the city and causing all the massacre in order to show their commanders and their president in Mogadishu what a good job they were doing. The next clip from the documentary looks at the record of one US-trained officer who was later found working as a taxi driver in Virginia. One of 300 Somali elite officers selected for special training, Tukay spent two years in Kansas before being redeployed back to the town of Gabile, west of Hirgeza in northern Somalia. Of all Barri's commanders in the region, he was infamous as one of the cruelest. His unit was allegedly responsible for the detention, torture and murder of thousands of people. In 2019, a civil jury in Virginia found Colonel Tukay responsible for torture and awarded damages to one of his victims. When the central government in Mogadishu eventually did collapse at the beginning of the 1990s, what forms of authority took its place and how did the people of Somalia experience that period? So the timing is really important that the central government collapsed at the beginning of the 1990s. This was also the end of the the Cold War, uh, and that's not a coincidence With Moscow weakening politically and economically, the United States really didn't feel like it needed Somalia anymore as a regional policeman in the Horn. And so it expressed its newfound concern for Siad Barre's human rights abuses. And I I put that in in air quotes. Uh, Obviously, the United States was well aware of what 
Siad Barre was doing before, but they chose to to turn a blind eye to it because they wanted to use him as a counterweight to the Soviet Union. So now that the Soviet Union's not there, the United States Bank began decrying human rights abuses and suspended uh, economic and military aid. Without this massive U.S. support that had been getting since late 1970s, Siad Barre was a really easy target. And in January 1991, the warlords and their clan-based militias overthrew the Siad Barre regime. Somalia essentially just collapsed into chaos. So um, southern Somalia fractured into fiefdoms ruled by rival warlords who clashed with this resurgent Islamist movement. State institutions disintegrated. Non-governmental actors had to provide any services that were provided at all. And interestingly, it was the Islamist organizations in particular that played a critical role in this regard. They restored law and order to the the war zones. They reestablished social services, basic social services like healthcare, education, um, and that sort of thing. And this was very much welcomed by the Somali population. What impact did the U.S.-led military intervention in that period have on Somalia? Okay, well, in the early 1990s, um, the United States, backed by the United Nations, launched a multinational military intervention. So this was 1992. Now, um, when I say multinational I mean, dominated by the United States with the sprinkling of troops from other countries to allow it to claim the the label of multinational. And we've certainly seen this in U.S. policy elsewhere. The mission of this 1992 endeavor was to ensure the delivery of humanitarian relief to the Somali people. The idea was that you know, this disaster was going to create instability in the horn, and that's not good for anybody. I want to talk to you today about the tragedy in Somalia and about a mission that can ease suffering and save lives. In December 1992, George Bush Sr. set out the rationale for the U.S. military mission in a televised address to the American people. Ships with food have been subject to artillery attacks that prevented them from docking. There is no government in Somalia. Law and order have broken down. Anarchy prevails. One image tells the story. Imagine 7,000 tons of food aid literally bursting out of a warehouse on a dock in Mogadishu while Somalis starve less than a kilometer away because relief workers cannot run the gauntlet of armed gangs roving the city. Confronted with these conditions, relief groups called for outside troops to provide security so they could feed people. It's now clear that military support is necessary to ensure the safe delivery of the food Somalis need to survive. It was this situation which led us to tell the United Nations that the United States would be willing to provide more help to enable relief to be delivered. In 1993, another UN mission permitted U.S.-led forces to disarm and arrest Somali warlords and militia members. So this was quite different than just 
having armed troops lining the road from the airport uh, into the country to allow the relief supplies to get in. But there wasn't a lot of publicity about this change. So many people just assumed that it was the same humanitarian mission that it had been the previous year. But involved in this ability to arrest and disarm the Somali warlords and militia members, it became clear that the U.S. and the U.N. favored one warlord over another. And the one that really was really opposed by the U.S. and the U.N. was a man by the name of Mohammed Farah Idid. And it became the, the, the goal of both the U.S. and the U.N. to arrest him, disarm him, capture or kill him, what have you. But for reasons I won't go into now, he was their preferred warlord. Uh, civilians were caught in the crossfire. And many were killed in U.S. airstrikes. And this included elders, clan leaders, religious leaders, intellectuals, and businessmen who were meeting to discuss a U.N. peace proposal. So these were clearly people who were considering joining forces with the U.N., but an airstrike wound up killing them. And these sorts of massacres of leaders and civilians caused a tremendous backlash in the Somali population. And they began to direct their retaliatory attacks, not only against the U.S. and U.N. troops, but against any foreigner. And so journalists were targeted and relief workers were targeted and many withdrew from Somalia. U.S. troops in turn began to consider most Somali uh, civilians a possible threat and treated them accordingly. And so the relationship between the U.S. troops and the Somali civilians was increasingly poor. And the pinnacle of this uh, was early October 1993, when the U.S. armed forces, hoping to capture or kill Idid and his top lieutenants, raided Somalia. Um, This was U.S. Army Rangers and Delta Force troops, and they raided some of the known Idid compounds in the capital city of Mogadishu. Idid's forces shot down two Black Hawk helicopters, which crashed into children in the crowd below. And angry crowds, as a result, attacked the soldiers who'd come to uh, rescue the survivors And in the end, 18 U.S. soldiers and hundreds of Somali men, women, and children were killed in the violence that followed. So the Somalis were killing the soldiers, but then U.N. forces and the Somali, you know, the supposed government forces uh, came in and targeted the civilians. Uh, So it was really a horrific situation. CW3, Mike Durant. An American helicopter pilot taken prisoner in Somalia. Much like the Ridley Scott movie Black Hawk Down, this CBS report from 1993 only mentioned the American casualties in the so-called Battle of Mogadishu. Twelve American soldiers killed, 78 wounded. Some of the dead dragged through the streets by jeering Somalis. A Canadian reporter saw one of the bodies. You could see quite clearly that his face had been mutilated 
and that he had a large gash wound along one of his thighs. This crowd followed it down the street and around a corner, pausing every once in a while for people to kick at the corpse, to spit on it, and, and to stomp on it. The worst U.S. casualties yet in Somalia, forcing the Pentagon to send reinforcements into what has become an all-out urban war. 200 soldiers complete with tanks and armored personnel carriers, and another 200 Army Rangers to replace those killed, wounded, and exhausted. Two AC-130 gunships and helicopters to replace those shot down. These are immediate steps that we feel is necessary to take care of the, of the, the U.S. forces which are in some risk. U.S. officials are fed up with the U.N. operation in Somalia, saying privately the top U.N. officer there, retired Admiral Jonathan Howe, should be fired for turning what was supposed to be a humanitarian mission into a vendetta against Mohammed Adi, who, despite the bloodshed, remains at large. I don't think there should be any deadline on uh, the arrest of Adi. The sooner the better. It would be a shortcut, I think, to stability and uh, the recovery of the country. Politicians of both parties are threatening to cut off funds for the operation. The end game of U.S. participation in Somalia should be measured in days and weeks, not months and years. It seems to me that enough Americans have died in Somalia. Despite all the casualties, Pentagon officials say they succeeded in capturing 19 of Adid's followers, including two of his key lieutenants. But if this operation was a success, then the U.S. can't stand much more success in Somalia. After the U.S. withdrawal from Somalia in the 1990s, there was a renewed interest in what was happening in the country after the 9-11 attacks and the so-called war on terror, which was launched by the U.S. How did that affect conditions in Somalia the new development of U.S. policy, and what factors lay behind the growth of the group Al-Shabaab? Well, in 1994, having stirred up a hornet's nest, the United States hastily withdrew its troops from Somalia. As we've seen elsewhere in the world, the U.S. expects to engage with opponents in various conflicts, but doesn't think you know, Americans should pay the price with their lives. Um, and so if too many Americans, quote unquote, are dying, then they withdraw. And so, and, and think of other ways of accomplishing their goals. So the United States withdrew in 1994. However, Al-Qaeda began to emerge elsewhere in East Africa. And this sparked new concerns the bombing of U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania in 1998 uh, is a case in point. And this was followed by the 9-11 attacks on the United States in 2001. This resulted in the U.S. increasing its collaboration with Ethiopia. And Ethiopia, as we've already seen, was Somalia's longtime nemesis. So this did not bode well for U.S. relations with Somalia. Meanwhile, Somali Islamist groups had gained significant popular support by providing essential social services, again, including schools, medical care, and courts that brought some law and order to the war zone. The United States ignored the reasons that Islamism had such appeal in Somalia. Certainly some of it was religious. You know, most Somalis were Muslims, 
although their their brand of Islam was less conservative than the Islamists who who felt that you know there was um, you know a, a very particular pathway and that religion should govern all aspects of life and um, the Somalis historically followed a more um, open and tolerant brand of Islam but the Islamists were the ones providing these services and they were very, very much needed. And so people turned to the Islamists and, um, you know, the United States just viewed all Islamists, all conservative Muslims as terrorists, as jihadists, which is absolutely an erroneous assumption that very, very few Islamists support um, violent extremism. Um, that's, that's something that really has unfortunately gone unquestioned in much of the Western media. So the U.S., um, feeling that they're all terrorists, uh, decided to collaborate with Ethiopia and set out on a violent campaign to stamp out Islamism in Somalia. It also banded together with Somali warlords. And in 2004, with the warlords in Ethiopia, it imposed a new government on Somalia. And this corrupt regime was dominated by the clan of one warlord, and it marginalized the rival clans. And interestingly, the rival clans that were marginalized were the ones that controlled the capital city of Mogadishu. And so this created some other problems. Um, it also purged the parliament of opposition members. So again, something we saw um, Siad Barre doing just going out on the attack against all opponents. So the new government that was imposed by the outsiders survived only with the protection of Ethiopian troops. It, it was uh, The new government wasn't even able to enter the capital city of Mogadishu and had to establish an alternate capital in the much smaller city of Baidoa. Two years later, in 2006, the U.S. backed another warlord coalition to counter Islamist power, and um, it also supported an Ethiopian invasion and an occupation that lasted until 2009. So it was this foreign intervention by Ethiopia that precipitated a domestic insurgency. Again, we saw this uh, in Iraq, uh, that a foreign invasion precipitated an insurgency where none had existed before. Speaking in December 2006, the Ethiopian leader Mele Zenawe claimed that his army would be able to pull out in a matter of weeks. We will not uh, let Mogadishu burn. We will help the transitional government to do whatever it can to make sure that Mogadishu is stabilized quickly. At most it will be a few weeks, hopefully uh, just a matter of days before we leave. Uh, but at most, it will be a matter of uh, a few weeks. The Ethiopian withdrawal actually came two years later, as Al Jazeera reported. Quitting Somalia, Ethiopian troops pulling out of the capital Mogadishu after two years. They've tried to back the country's fragile government in its war against insurgents, but they were hated by many Somalis who accused them of illegally occupying the country. Some analysts say Ethiopia has given up fighting a war it knows it cannot win. But for them, the pullout is mission accomplished. 
We did our best, better than any other of Somalia's neighbors, and now we are getting out of Somalia. I hope also that the international community will support Somalia politically and militarily. We are getting out of Somalia with respect. In the case of Somalia, the domestic insurgency was led by al-Shabaab. Now, al-Shabaab means the youth, and it originated as a youth militia that was organized to protect the Islamic courts. These were the courts that brought law and order to the war zone. Yes, they were Sharia courts. Um, no, they did not include cutting off hands and that sort of thing, which you know is what many in the West associate with Sharia law. Uh, but it, you know, it was a court that was based on religious principles, uh, and Al Shabaab had been organized to support it. But they weren't violent at that point. It was the foreign invasion and occupation that turned them into a militia that was organized to expel the the foreign occupiers. Now, again, we always hear about it as you know, it's it's affiliated to Al Qaeda. True enough, it is today, but it didn't affiliate with Al-Qaeda until 2012, and the invasion was 2006. So for six years, it was independent, not affiliated with Al-Qaeda, although Al-Qaeda proclaimed its support for the insurgency. So again, it was this foreign invasion backed by the United States that brought Al-Qaeda into Somalia. Now, by 2007, al-Shabaab had taken control of large parts of central and southern Somalia, and this prompted the United Nations, the African Union, and neighboring countries to intervene. So the forward intervention is only getting stronger. The United States um, didn't send its own troops, but it worked in the shadows, launching a low-intensity warfare against al-Shabaab operatives deploying private contractors, in other words, mercenaries, and special operations forces to train and accompany Somali and African Union troops in combat operations. Again, this so-called low-intensity warfare included U.S. airstrikes and also now drones. And they targeted Somali uh, al-Shabaab leaders and assassinated them, essentially. Interestingly, they were quickly replaced by others. So this, you know, just, you know, cut off the uh, head of the hydra and, and, you know, a new head would grow. So it it really uh, did not take care of the problem. If anything, it kept the flow of al-Shabaab from the, the, the grassroots coming up through the ranks and created more and more leaders. So uh, al-Shabaab increasingly focused its attention on the West targeting, again, aid workers, journalists, and Somalis who worked with them. Now, outside forces in 2012, again, uh, imposed a new political dispensation. And although it was mediated by the UN and backed by the international community, it was disavowed by large segments of the Somali civil society, which had had little input into the process. So once again, you know, it's outsiders tried to determine Somalia's future, not allowing Somalis to speak for themselves about what their grievances were, what kind of post-conflict society they wanted to see. None of these uh, groups were involved 
women's groups, the youth groups, other civil society groups. None of them were involved in the negotiation. None of their their initiatives were uh, taken seriously. Al-Shabaab um, was driven from Mogadishu. It was driven further to the south. But as it as it left, it it focused on new targets. So instead of targeting the outsiders in the capital city, they began to target unprotected so-called soft targets, government offices, schools, hotels, restaurants, and then uh, attacking across the border into Kenya and other countries that had supplied troops to the African Union intervention forces. So the conflict is expanding beyond Somalia rather than diminishing as a result of this foreign intervention. Today, in 2022, Al-Shabaab maintains its powerful foothold in Somalia in the absence of any functioning state apparatus. There was a new president elected in May 2022 after a protracted political crisis, much like the crises of other governments, favoritism, corruption, mismanagement. The previous president had refused to hold elections. The central government is still not providing basic services. There is no coherent national army and the security forces like the civilian government are riven by clan-based factions who fight each other rather than al-Shabaab. So few Somalis, um, uh, outsiders have done polls, few Somalis believe that the new government will behave any differently from the succession of governments that preceded it. They expected to go on catering to corrupt elites rather than the majority of citizens and ignoring the grievances that ignited the insurgency. The United States, meanwhile, is continuing to wage its shadow war. The nature of the war has changed. The number of feet on the ground has decreased. And interestingly, it was the Obama administration that was responsible for this. It escalated the use of drones in strikes to kill al-Shabaab targets rather than using U.S. special forces and military contractors. So, so the um, engagement of the U.S. In, uh, in Somalia has really been obscured from the consciousness of most U.S. citizens because Americans aren't dying. And they really didn't pay attention to what the Obama administration was doing that was creating even increased hostility towards the United States. Hello. Hey, Mohammed. Yes. Can you hear me? It's Seb Walker from Vice News. Okay, yes, sir. Welcome. For the past five months, the U.S. has been quietly ramping up its campaign of deadly airstrikes in Somalia. This 2020 report from Vice News looked at the impact of U.S. drone strikes in Somalia. Somalis living in al-Shabaab-controlled territories say they're getting caught in the crossfire. How do people feel in this area, in, in middle Juba, about these airstrikes? They feel a great uh, fear. They are horrified by even the sound of a warplane is flying over that city every night. Already this year, the U.S. has carried out 41 airstrikes. That's more than in the entire eight years of the Obama administration. Tell us about what happened. When, when did you get the news of this attack? Around 8 on that Sunday evening, there was a missile hit into my relative's 
a house and at that time there were about five people they were having a dinner there were four persons hit by that airstrike my mother-in-law three other children one died on the day of the airstrike on Mohammed's town the US military's Africa command known as Africom released a statement saying they killed one al-shabab militant according to their report no civilians were killed why do you think they targeted your family i mean were there, were there any connections with al-shabab they are farmers they sometimes keep life so this is their own job there is no way of linking with al-shabab militants africom's campaign in somalia has gone on for 13 years it's admitted to just four civilian deaths stories like mohammed's have led outside groups to believe that the actual number is much higher i think we know more about these people in many cases than africom does they'll say they killed three terrorists but then when we actually track down the names of who these people are right. their families we find really a different story as a final question following on from what you've been saying there as things stand today what authority if any does the current somali government have inside the country and how would you describe the country's long-term political and also developmental prospects i would say it, this the situation is pretty bleak that um as i said most of the somali civilians had really no input in the peace initiatives brokered by these outside actors agricultural cooperatives i mentioned women's and and youth groups but also trade unions and therefore the grassroots uh peace building efforts um have been sidelined you know by the the more powerful forces from the outside and the interests of foreign governments and somali elites once again have prevailed over those of ordinary citizens so you know they really haven't supported this succession of weak governments the succession of 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 peace treaties and unfortunately it appears that the biden administration is going to follow the in the footsteps of his predecessors uh both president obama and president trump defaulting to this failed military policy of endless war and in until that stops somali citizens yeah. and the civilians will continue to pay the the consequences many thanks to elizabeth schmidt for that account of somalia's modern history you can also read her article about the history of us intervention in somalia on the jacobin website The new Jacobin issue, all about inflation, is out now. Contributors such as Samir Santi, our own Doug Henwood, and many others explore the issue of inflation, how its management reflects political choices and class interests, the related history of privatization and the commodification of public goods, and how to fight inflation in a way that puts the needs of people before capital. You can get a year-long print subscription, including the new issue, for just $20 by going to bit.ly/jacobinradio. That's bit.ly/jacobinradio. Thanks. It's